Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an old mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, investing with Africa for Africa, listing at the Johannesburg Stock Exchange on the 26th of June. Old Mutual, do great things. Welcome to The Money Show on this Monday night. Lots going on. David Monroe, catch up with him in just a moment. Chief Executive at Liberty, are there any closer to solving the data breach, the hack um, that affected them toward the end of last week? We'll also this evening uh, talk to Lika Suma, who's in Ethiopia. She's with Africa Connected. She's He's out and about. The Stock Pick Monday, we'll talk to Stuart Theobald about this. Really understanding what's going on with ESCOM. There's so much misinformation about and Stuart does great analysis on this. And then, if you think you can spin your way out of trouble, then you've probably read Nick Cleland's book, the author of Spin, The Art of Managing the Media. I think that's a 1990s construct. We'll see whether or not he can manage the media this evening. There's your challenge, Nick Cleland. And then, Make Money Monday special edition guest. The best people to talk to about money are people who don't have it. Talking to a journalist tonight, a long-serving journalist tonight, Max Dupria in studio. Uh, and I can't wait to hear his views on money and the dumbest thing he ever did with money. I wonder what that was. Great thing for the country, starting Freya Vierkblatt, but he couldn't have made anything out of it. We'll talk all about that this evening on The Money Show. 702 The Money Show. Bruce is on Twitter, at Bruce Business. Fast fact time. Let's ask you that fast fact question on 31702 and 31567. If you know the answer to today's fast fact, give us a shout on 31702 and 31567. Short, sweet question tonight. What's at 38.1? That's all. What's at 38.1? That is your fast fact question for you this evening on 31702 and 31567. 702 The Money Show. The Money Show. SMS Bruce on 31702. If, like me, you didn't know there was an information regulator until you heard Eyewitness News at 6 o'clock this evening, now you do know. The information regulator saying it's worried about the hacking of liberty. It's looking for an urgent meeting with the chief executive, David Munro, who joins us on the line from Johannesburg this evening. Have you had that, that meeting with the information regulator, David Munro? Uh, good evening, Bruce, and good evening to our listeners. Um, no, we've scheduled that meeting for later this week, but I, I do welcome the approach um, and contact made by the information regulator. Um, I think as we've been clear in, in our communications uh, since this uh, event took place and that we could be uh, transparent in the public domain, that many authorities have been interested in this and we've cooperated with all of those that uh, have wished to talk to us. The, the data breach first picked up on Thursday. What have you managed to establish in the uh, probably about 100 hours since then? Bruce, we detected this very late on Thursday evening and mobilized a team of specialists that have really been working around the clock. What we have, what is clear to us is that we had an illegal and unauthorized access to our network. They accessed a server that we believe, well, that we know housed email-type content with attachments. And we're pretty sure that some data from that server was stolen from us. 
uh, we're at an advanced stage of, of understanding um, what uh, that data looked like. And we've obviously done a huge amount of work to make sure that uh, the um, vulnerability has been repaired and that uh, we've also increased our defences. Has that server been blocked to you? Um, do you still have access to it? Has the information disappeared from that server? What is no, the state of that server? No, actually, that's an interesting question. No, what, was, what happened was that the information was actually just copied and taken away from us. So all the information is retained. It's not as though we lost the information. It's just that the data was taken from us. And that's, I guess, the nature of the digital world today. It's a little bit akin to somebody walking around your house and taking photographs. And um, you really don't know you know, what um, the photograph might look like because the, the, the contents of your home is still there. Yeah, the contents of your home is there for now, but we don't know what the, what the burglar, the potential burglar is going to do. Is the photograph, are they taking photographs because they're planning to come and burgle you properly later with a whole bunch of mates? And that's an, an issue raised by Arthur Goldstuck today, saying there's a fundamental error in the assurances from Liberty. In this kind of breach, financial damage begins to occur only after users' personal data is exposed in the wild, which I think just means the dark web. Uh, for this reason, there is a critical need for greater transparency on the nature of the breach. Have you established um, what the risks are to yourselves and to your clients whose information may very well have been accessed? Yeah, Bruce, I think in this instance, we can also, it's, it's not as simple as, a, as, a, as the analogy I used, we, we can also track the flow of data out of our organization through the logs. So we do have a good sense of, of what that data may have been. And um, we, we're definitely looking at uh, where this could impact either staff, clients, or um, the, the, the strategic nature of our business. And uh, we'll take a, a steps accordingly. What we've said very clearly is at the moment that we do identify a piece of data that was breached and that relates to a customer or a customer's detail or our staff, we will contact them and deal with them independently or, or directly uh, individually. You haven't been able to do that yet. You still don't have the level of, not- of information on, at this stage. No, where we have identified, um, in particular, this is, relates to staff. Uh, staff information that has been breached. We've spoken to the staff members involved. Um, in when when you look at the the hacked files and and the purpose of the data and the breach and your client's right to privacy, um, there is a great deal of discomfort about the sort of information that has been taken. Can you be unequivocal that there is no immediate financial consequence to any one of your clients? This isn't an accessing of unit trust information and money. This isn't the removal of life insurance. If somebody has an accident tonight and suddenly they need to claim on life insurance, the data breach isn't going to impact their relationship with you and their ability to claim or their ability to cash in an investment. No, Bruce, I think that you know the key area of focus for us here is our duty of care to our customers and making sure that uh, their interests are protected. And I think that goes to two you know, core things that we do for customers. Firstly, we provide contracts of insurance and policies of insurance, and those are all absolutely in force and remain in force. And we've uh, um, been very clear that we will you know, stand by every one of our existing obligations, and this uh, data definitely doesn't impact the enforced business that we have and the relationships and, and uh, commitments that we have to our clients. Secondly, we do facilitate investments for our clients and invest money on their behalf. And um, again, uh, we are absolutely sure that there's no evidence to date that any financial loss could be caused um, in relation to their investments as a result of this data breach. Uh, Mark, who's just SMS, says, I've got questions for your guests tonight, a whole bunch of questions. One that relates to you. Will Liberty compensate me for the data breach? I mean, is there any requirement for you to compensate a client whose personal information may have leaked onto the Internet? What do your T's and C's say? I think, Bruce, um, you know, in this instance, we'll have to evaluate each, each um, 
uh, breach or, or each um, customer instance uh, as we as we uncover it and as we deal with the customer directly. And you know, each uh, circumstance needs to be dealt with uh, fairly, and uh, we'll we'll absolutely do our best to do that. Any indications of this being an inside job? Your life and banking will tell you that many of the cash and transit robberies that we see are inside jobs. Bank robberies are inside jobs. Um, you know, have you managed to assess whether or not this hack was done with a little bit of inside help? You know, Bruce, I think that's a it's a critical point. Um, this is a criminal event um we are subject to a criminal attack and uh, as i said earlier these were unauthorized this is unauthorized access and uh, instigated by criminal elements um i can't comment on on a on a particular fact like that there's lots of speculation um in the public domain as to what actually happened here and we are dealing with the authorities on on this kind of um detail what authorities are you dealing with i mean i once met the the the, the cyber crime force of the saps um he was a very nice man um the, the, this was about four or five years ago the capacity of the state to deal with cyber crime wasn't particularly strong then is it a bigger and more effective now yeah i have no reservations about the quality of the engagement that we've had with all of the uh, authorities that we've dealt with and uh, indeed, the support that we've had from them um, during this very, very difficult time. Um, it's amazing to see how people have come together to support us and assist us in, in um, the work that we needed to do. So I have uh, only um, uh, you know, a very, very positive um, okay. uh, disposition to the way that we've been supported by the authorities. I know you're busy and you've got lots of meetings and you've got a crisis on your hands here, David Monroe. Last question for you. Richam Kondo, former journalist, says uh, the hacker, South African or Outside of South Africa, we have this sort of sense that um, a lot of this sort of hacking stuff happens from basements in Eastern Europe. Is there any sort of indication as to where it came from? No, Bruce, once again, I'm afraid, given that this is a criminal matter, we, we can't comment on, on anything like that at this point in time. I'm terribly sorry. David Monroe, Chief Executive of Liberty this evening on The Money Show. Jacques van Heerden is an IT security expert, a global technology security provider on the line to us from Pretoria. This is probably a lot more common than we think, Jacques. Liberty just happens to be a listed company that deals with people's private money, um, and that's why there's a huge amount of interest to it. But these things are, are these sort of cyber attacks a ten a penny on a daily basis, I'm sure. Good evening, Bruce. Yes, you're quite right. This happens on a daily basis in South Africa. And um, it's unfortunately that uh, customer data gets stolen in this regard. But yes, it does happen very frequently. How worried should customers of Liberty or customers of any financial services company, frankly, um, that may or may not be hacked be about their data disappearing um, via the Internet? Well, Bruce, it depends on what kind of data has been leaked from Liberty or stolen from Liberty in this regard. But um, I, well, frankly, I don't know what data has been leaked or stolen. In, in general cases, uh, the hackers are looking for very specific information like your ID number, your name, surname and other re- relevant information so that they can do so, certain amount of t- account takeovers on your behalf. For instance, opening up a new account at, let's call it Acres. And they would then empty out that account or buy a lot of stuff on that account. And you would ultimately be responsible for that. Um, when one looks at the the likelihood as to the basis of a hack like this against a firm the size of Liberty in the insurance sector, it's not like they run deposits. They don't have big deposit sure. books. They, they don't, they're not looking to access personal bank accounts, for example, going sure. by Liberty. What is the likely origin of what's going on here? Oh, Bruce, uh, data or customer data is equal to money. And if I have a lot of equal or if I have a lot of data, I can sell it on underground or I can extort a company. 
So the data, although Liberty is not a bank, their data is very valuable. And hackers go after the data and they, they will extort a company for that. Uh, I kind of picture a cyber attack a bit like a hailstorm on a Joburg summer's afternoon. It, it threatens and it thunders sure. and it sort of comes and it goes and you get the sort of sense of electricity in the air. Companies know when people are trying to breach the gates, if you like, and then suddenly thousands of hailstones descend and some might break a couple of windows. Liberty in this particular case has got some broken windows. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, obviously. Um, it all depends on the vulnerability as well. Um, if there's a new vulnerability from Microsoft, for instance, which is uh, published on the Internet, you'll see a lot of hackers uh, pinpointing that vulnerability, and they will exploit that vulnerability on customers' networks in order to get access to the data and then either encrypt the data, which we know as ransomware, or they will copy it off-site and then send a ransom note to the company stating that you will pay us this amount of call it bitcoins and cryptocurrency, otherwise we will release it on on the underground network, which is a bad thing for large organizations like in this case, Liberty. But Liberty is not the only company which this is happening to. It's happening to a lot of government organizations as well throughout this um, country. A lot of government organizations? That's quite ominous, Jacques. Give us some insight there. (laughs) No, I can't. You've said too much no. already. You've said too much already. No, but the, the fact no. is, we, we kind of, we trust people with our information. You fill in a home affairs form, you apply sure. for a driver's license, you um, pay a speeding fine, whatever it might be, um, where your personal data is, that stuff is vulnerable. And you're saying, actually, Liberty is the tip of a, of a much bigger and more terrifying iceberg. Well, look at the ViewFinds attack, which happened a couple of weeks ago. Um, ViewFinds data got leaked, and that information is your ID number, your name, surname, and other relevant information. If you look at the Deeds Office attack, it wasn't the Deeds Office itself, it was somebody else, but that information that was leaked included your name, surname, ID number, your property information, and your salary information at the time when you bought the property. That is all relevant information that the attackers would use to perform some social engineering attack on your accounts. And they would open up a new account or buy a car on your behalf, which happens quite often in this country. Jacques, I don't, this isn't even Halloween and you're scaring the living daylights out of us. Jacques van Heerden, IT security expert, chief scarer at a global technology security provider. The company's called GTSP. But critical warnings. And this stuff is out of your control. It's out of your control and you have to hold the companies to whom you hand over your data, oblivious to the risks often, um, that they are deeply responsible for that. The Money Show. The Markets. Tracy Brodziak with the old Mutual Investment Group with today's markets. I did ask you in our fast fact earlier, I said to you, what is 38.1? And a number of you know me very intimately. You tell me it's my body temperature. It is about 38.1, I think, or 38.2 or thereabouts, or 37. I don't know. But no, that's not the answer. And certainly, I feel a bit flushed this evening, so it's not 38.1. I'm sure it's higher. Uh, Tracy Project with the Old Mutual Investment Group. The JNC was actually broken for a, a big chunk of this morning. We haven't had that happen for a while. No, we haven't. Um, trading actually only started at 11 a.m. this morning, uh, which was probably just as well, because there was a lot of red across the screen. Um, you know, I think the markets were just digesting some of the concerns um, over trade wars, um, potential. Uh, hey, you got Donald Trump saying we don't want to be importing Chinese stuff and we put big levies on it. The Chinese are saying, well, you do that to us, we'll do it back to you. Suddenly the cost of global trade escalates dramatically and you, you start getting bottlenecks happening in global trade and little economies like ours get caught in the crossfire. 
Yeah, so I, don't, I think it's it's not a zero-sum game. I think it is um, negative for the global economy. Um, and, um, you know, I think we do hope that sense does prevail in the end and there's a lot of posturing and a little bit of concessions on either side. Um, but obviously, you know, this rhetoric has been going on for quite a while um, and it does concern the markets. Um, you also have perhaps just some concern over emerging markets and you're getting some emerging market outflows, which is also not good um, for a country like South Africa. And basically all of this transpired to um, weaken the RAND um, today. So that was probably the key feature uh, of today, just the significant weakening in the RAND. And, you know, that really led to quite a lot of weakness across all SA Inc. stocks. So you saw banks, retailers, um, insurers um, down, you know, three-odd percent um, on the day. Liberty was worse than the rest. How much of a train smash is Liberty's data breach? One kind of feels that these things are quite commonplace and depending on how they deal with it and what was stolen, um, they might be able to weather this one quite easily. Well, I, 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 you know, I think any data breach isn't great. Um, and I think um, cybersecurity is, is something that all financial companies take very, very seriously and they've spent a lot of money on it. So, you know, um, you know it's unfortunate and it does happen. Um, but, you know... I guess it depends on what was stolen, what yeah. data, what is the implications of that. From a brand perspective, it's pretty damaging. I mean, it's a case of like, hold on a second. If if my information isn't safe, what else isn't safe? And that's what we need the reassurance from Liberty on that. Yeah, so I mean, I think all of these are going to be learning experiences and how it happened and to try and make sure it doesn't happen. I'm pretty convinced all other financial services companies will be watching this and making sure that they also um, are at the best practice and have thrown whatever they can to prevent these sort of attacks um, happening. But it's like mosquitoes in the night. I mean, if you go to an area with lots of mosquitoes, you swat one and there's another one coming. Data breaches are a bit like that. There's constant bombardment uh, from places you can't see. You you might see the signals or hear the signals, whatever the case is, but they're coming at you from all angles all the time. So, I mean, it is quite... Horrifying, as your previous guests um, mm. alluded to, just how many data breaches there have been. Um, and, you know, when you look at that, I mean, I think you've obviously just got to take your account um, data very seriously. So, for example, just make sure you don't use the same passwords more than once because otherwise you allow someone into all of your... That's the problem. Um, now, listen, Basil Reed finally suspended from the JSE. That was a piece of good news because that, uh, that died last week, um, went into business rescue. A short list of potential buyers for Mercantile. Now, this is quite interesting. You've got Capitec that's interested. You've got Nedbank that's interested. You've got Bayport with the PIC who are interested in buying a, a relatively small bank, but it's a banking license and it's uh, it's got a network and an infrastructure. Yeah, so, I mean, my understanding was Bidvest were also perhaps in there as well. Um, yeah, so I mean, basically, they their parent is a four seller. Uh, the Kaisha. It's Kaisha. A, it's the I wasn't going band. to try and pronounce that because I'm sure I'd offend all the Portuguese listeners out there. Um, so you know, I think they've obviously invited bids for it. Um, you know, I think from Capitec's point of view, it's interesting in that it's quite different to its core kind of business. So it's much more SME lending rather than the sort of unsecured and transactional, where they've been very, very strong. Um, you know, I guess a lot depends on how much they pay for it and what they intend to, to do with it. Um, you know, the other banks, for example, Nedbank, etc., I can understand because it would add scale and, um, 
it would make sense from that. And I suppose for Capitec, it's, it's signaling a, a change in strategy. But that's the point. That's the interesting bit is that, hold on a second, Capitec, that's not your market. Oh, it could be your market in the future. Last one, another Christo Visa company examine how it, it treats its results and how it treats tax and how it treats its accounting. It's called Invicta. It's not a very well-known company, but there's a bit of a meal culpa coming through there, perhaps once bitten, uh, twice shy on this one. Well, I mean, they basically put out a trading statement on Friday saying um, that the results will be down significantly, um, which they released today. And a lot of that has to do with uh, a big tax provision. So this is a company that's been um, under quite a lot of scrutiny for its uh, treatment of its BE deal and the potential tax implications of that. They've always maintained that it's above board and 100 percent came out on Friday and said, actually, we're going to make a big provision. So they've provided $400 million in addition to the $150 million they provided in the prior year. So that's a really big it's uh, huge. provision. Um, so, you know, that's obviously had a decimated the earnings uh, for this year. Um, you know, I think it does give some questions on, on credibility and do they push the boundaries too much. Um, but I think, obviously, if you look at the core business, and this goes back to our earlier point, it's um, pretty tough out there. It's an SA Inc. kind of company, um, and you can see that the earnings were also under quite a lot of pressure. Um, they call it depressed conditions, and you know they did okay on an operating basis, but it just shows you how tough it is. Tracy Brodziak with the old Mutual Investment Group. Thank you. Um, lots of you, especially Cape Tonians, surprisingly enough, getting the number 38.1%. Right? It's the damn levels, whispers Tracy Brodziak. It's those damn levels. Yes, Cape Town's average damn levels compared to a year ago when damn levels were 23%. Today's figure after a couple of weeks of much better rainfall than previous years gives some hope that the worst of the drought may very well be getting to turn a corner in the Western Cape. The Berg River Dam, Stienbras Upper Dam, the Vemazook Dam is more, more than 60% full, but the average is reduced by the likes of the massive, really massive, heavily dependent Tiervatuskloof at City of just a quarter of its total capacity. So Tiervatuskloof and a couple of others still need a lot more rain to be topped up. But average dam levels, 38.1%. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual. Investing with Africa for Africa. Listing on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange on 26 June. Old Mutual. Do great things. Welcome to The Money Show. Probably the most damning indictment of internet shopping in South Africa since takealotswallowedkalahari.com. I see that spree and superbolist are merging. Who? Well, online shops are merging. Media24 will own 51%, take a lot 49% of the combined entity. Take a lot will continue to run this particular venture. And it tells you, though, that there really isn't enough trade happening online to sustain big competitors in South Africa. It could be a broadband thing. It could be a trust thing. It could just be the fact that South Africans really like shops and don't like to go online. But, yeah, it's kind of sad, I suppose. Spree and Superbalist are one. On the next Money Show, we're looking at the science of the new mining charter. It's huge. There are lots of contentious issues being raised that are open for public comment. Brandon Erslinger from Strata Legal joins us next time on the Money Show. Plus, Andy Rice with our ad Heroes and Zeros of the Week. That is all coming up next time on the Money Show. Africa Connected, your link to Africa's markets. Brought to you by Standard Bank moving forward. Hashtag Africa Connected. Ali Kasumba from Addis Ababa this evening, host of Africa State of Mind. And of course, she is with us this evening on Africa Connected. Uh, good to have you with us this evening, Lee Kasumba. Tell me, please, what it's like uh, where you are this evening. 
Um, well, this evening it's a little bit chilly, which is a bit disappointing because it is rainy season. Um, and so, yeah, so it is a little bit chilly, but the city um, of Addis um, Ababa is really busy and there's so much happening. So it's been a really great day. And just in terms of learning insights and just, you know, interacting with, with people around uh, the city has been really great. Now, they've got a new government, they've got a new prime minister, been in office for mm. about 100 days and seems to be a bit of a mover and a shaker. He really is. You know, um, Bruce, one thing that did uh, stand out is from the time that we spoke to the, um, the the ambassador to South Africa from Ethiopia, right up until every conversation. So be it people at the hotel, be it, you know, um, the, the people that were taking us around or different people that we interviewed, everybody went on about how the new prime minister is really doing, um, you know, he's really made a huge impact with regards to changing things around so that, you know, Ethiopia can grow at an even faster rate. Now, one of the amazing things that has happened um, is that the UAE has injected one um, has injected three billion into the um, economy here. So in Ethiopia, there is a shortage of foreign currency, which has been one of the the big points that is hindered, you know, when it comes to imports and exports and all the rest. And so the UAE firstly deposited uh, one billion US dollars um, into the into the national bank here, and then they also have now invested an, an extra two billion um, US dollars, and this goes into the economy, culture, and tourism as well. And, you know, part of the, the, if you read the local papers and even the way people describe it here, they said, oh, a lot of it was done in good faith and good measure because they really are excited about um, dealing with the new prime minister of, of Ethiopia. And they just really wanted to show that, you know, the UAE was behind a lot of the developments happening here. No, nice to see. Um, power supply, often an issue in many parts of our continent. How's power supply in, in Ethiopia? So this is one of the the, 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 the the places where they really are working on improving. The power supply here is not so great. So it's quite visible when you go to um, different um, shops or restaurants or, or you just, you know, different offices. You do you do tend to see that it is a little bit darker than, you know, most other countries, um, especially in the middle of the day and at night. And so what they're trying to do now is that tomorrow there will be an announcement that's going to be made. But basically what they're doing is that they're trying to get um, private companies and, and, you know, international foreign investment fed into into the economy and one of the the sectors that they're looking at is into energy as well so they are trying to sort that out you do have a lot of generators here um you know which we didn't see in in Cote d'Ivoire for example you know but so here the power issue is one of the main issues and obviously you know when you have power issues it just makes running business be it small big business or small business a little bit more challenging but it's something that the new administration is actively going um actively trying to work towards sorting out uh, and then the legend is Coffee was discovered in Ethiopia. A shepherd boy was watching the goats, and the goats got terribly <laughs> excited when they nibbled on uh, on the coffee bush. They ate the beans. Um, we went around, running around in circles, and he thought, "Oh, I should get myself some of that." That's the legend, uh, but it is the epicenter of Africa's coffee trade, or at least the the, the genesis of the coffee trade. Yes, it is. That is um, the legend. A lot of people actually told us that story as well. I was quite um, entertained by it. Um, but so basically, um, in the, the area where it was found is an area called um, Kafuso, and that's where the name coffee comes from, you know. And we found that out when we spoke to the CEO of Metadat, who basically are all about sustainability at its best, and they really deal with coffee from the seed to the cup form. So, you know, they, they, so yeah, that is pretty much what is going on with coffee here. But then what's also interesting is that, you know, um, when you look at the GDP of 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 
Ethiopia, about 35% of it is basically comes from the coffee industry. So the government has now stepped in to regulate it a lot more and to make sure that they can get the finest quality out there because there was a bit of a drop um, earlier on. I mean, earlier on, it was at about 60%. So it's dropped to about 35%. So it's something the government is doing to regulate because out of the 110 million people in Ethiopia, 20 million of them are directly involved in the coffee industry. So it's quite a big thing for the government here. My thanks to you, Lee Kasumba, this evening. Lee Kasumba with Africa Connected, live to us this evening on a beautifully crystal clear line all the way from Addis Ababa. And for more on these travels, go to africaconnected.co.today. Standard Bank calls Africa home and drives her growth. Combining their strong African presence with global capabilities, Standard Bank supports businesses that need a banking partner who knows Africa. Standard Bank has partnered with Cape Talk on Africa Connected to give you in-depth, first-hand insights into Africa's diverse markets and the innovative solutions that come from Africa. Sanabank, moving forward. 702, The Money Show. The Money Show. SMS Bruce on 31702. One of the best bits about this job is getting great books, and tonight's book is with uh, Nick Cleland. Um, he is the co-author with Ryan Kutsier. These are two former Democratic Alliance spin doctors, insiders in the inner circle of the Democratic Alliance, and they've gone into a consultancy business. Uh, Ryan Kutsier actually went off to the United Kingdom and worked uh, with the Liberal Democrats. Uh, they kind of fell from grace, of course, when they decided to partner with the Conservative Party government, um, when David Cameron came very close to losing that uh, election, which made him Prime Minister, which made him uh, feel quite invincible and he then uh, was, we felt doubly invincible when he then no longer needed the Liberal Democrats and tossed them on the garbage heap of political history. Well, that's maybe a little bit strong, but I think that's the way a lot of people see it. They've hardly got any MPs left in the UK Parliament anymore. And anyway, um, then David Cameron took it upon himself to take the vote um, on the... have a referendum, and uh, the referendum uh, said that Britain should leave the European Union. And we're less than a year away from that fateful decision, and one wonders whether or not they're able to get out of it or not, and whether or not Britain will exit the European Union, so-called Brexit. Tonight's book is a long way of introducing it is called Spin, the Art of Managing the Media. Nick Cleland and Ryan Kutsier have co-authored it. And it is this notion of spin doctoring. And spin doctoring has been given a terribly bad name. Remember the Michael J. Fox series, United States, really cheesy series called Spin City. And Michael J. Fox is the mayor's spin doctor. That's when we first became aware of this concept of spin. And then Tony Blair's administration in the United Kingdom made it an incredibly popular idea that you could spin your way out of anything. The trouble is, Ultimately, the facts will catch up with you, as Tony Blair has learned to his cost over uh, the invasion of Iraq and uh, huge uh, inquiries into that. So you can win the spin game in the short term. My question, uh, and maybe Nick Lennon doesn't really worry about this too much over the long term. Um, this is a very short-term focus. But yeah, spin, the art of managing the media. We'll do that book in just a bit. Khabran Smith, Chief Investment Officer at NEFG Fund Managers, on the line to us this evening. We don't have time for, for all of your stock picks tonight. I I'm curious about Standard Bank, controlling shareholder of Data Breached Liberty. Why is that on your radar? <laughs> yeah, look, it's a leading retail bank in South Africa. It's top mortgage lender, uh, the top unsecured lender, it's second to APSA in the credit card division, and it's a leader by far in the corporate banking market. Trading at about 11p multiple for this year, uh, four and a half dividend yield down about 17% from its recent high. So a lot of weakness in the South African market at the moment. 
And about 30% of their profits get derived from Africa at the moment and outside of South Africa. And they've, they've been slammed before of lots of physical infrastructure across, across the continent. Um, and people were preferring first round the previous five years for the light capital intensive plan that they had into Africa. But I think that's starting to pay off if you saw the latest numbers um, a few months back. Uh, Africa is growing rapidly for Standard Bank. The IT infrastructure, the spend is gone on that side. So I think you're going to see lots of surprises on the upside Standard Bank in the next year or two on earnings. And um, it's one of our biggest stock picks. Okay. And then uh, RMI, Rand Merchant Insurance, these are the guys that own a big slug of Discovery. They also own a, a very nice little insurance company called Outurance. Yeah, Outurance, if we do our calculations and we put a, only a 12p multiple on it, which is about half of what Santan trades in the local market at. Uh, it's about 51% of the sum of the part valuation of RMI. Um, then you get discovery at about 29% of RMI sum of the part valuations. Uh, Hastings, which is a nice niche UK short-term insurer, of about 10%. And MMI, 9%. And a lot of small fund managers and other businesses for about 1%. So if we do that... 18% discount on a 12P valuation on our insurance. We still get to a 22% discount on RMI share price today. And we think if you if you, if you take away that 18% discount that we put on, which we think is a bit unfair, probably sitting with an asset of about 40% discount to what the share price is trading at the moment. Gabrans, but we must leave it there. Thank you. Big discount in RMI. And you also like Standard Bank, Chief Investment Officer at NEFG Fund Managers. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. Mark on Twitter says, classic spin by ESCOM to deflect the attention away from its load shedding onto Liberty's cyber crisis. Oh, there's a conspiracy theory if there ever was one. Um, yeah, I wonder, imagine ESCOM hacking into Liberty just to get cause deflection. I think that's a lovely theory, Mark. Um, but on that basis, I mean, can you get attention away from yourself? Can you deflect attention away from yourself successfully enough to not put yourself in the firing line when the chips are down? We'll talk to Nick Cleland, who's written a book about it. He runs a consultancy that advises politicians and people in crisis and companies in crisis on how best to deal with the messaging around the mess that's being created either by yourself or by external parties, whatever it might be, circumstances, events, whatever it is, to try and get the best possible image for yourself or your entity or your company or your party, whatever it might be. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual Investing with Africa for Africa, listing at the Johannesburg Stock Exchange on the 26th of June. Old Mutual, do great things. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. I was given hell on social media last week for suggesting that it was time for some cutbacks at state-owned enterprises, namely uh, SAA and also at uh, at ESCOM. Interesting. I was first racially abused and then called an idiot for not understanding South Africa's unemployment crisis and how would cutting jobs at the likes of ESCOM and SAA improve that problem? And I kind of paused for a moment and went, no, 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 I'm right. And then that was, uh, it was nice to see that affirmed by somebody who does serious research into the world of money and markets. And uh, what my dear critics missed was the fact that when you suck the life out of an economy, um, by wasting money in its state-owned enterprises and keep throwing money at defunct and deficient organizations, 
you're taking money away from growth projects. You're taking money away from opportunity. You're simply throwing good money after bad. And that, I think, is the critical point made today by Stuart Theobald, financial analyst and chairman at Intellidex, who joins us on the line from London this evening. Please explain to me, Stuart, that correlation between propping up a deficient state-supported company and the loss of economic competitiveness in an economy. Well, we've been propping up uh, Eskom through drastically higher electricity prices. You know, the, the 20% odd increases year by year now added up to 350% increase in electricity costs over the last decade. Uh, and that's what's propped up uh, a, an increasingly inefficient uh, utility that employs vastly more people uh, than it did 10 years ago, even though it produces less electricity. Uh, and employs them at at quite considerably higher cost than it did 10 years ago, at least double the inflation rate uh, over that period. And when we're paying for that out of higher electricity prices, it means that the economics for many companies turn against them. Uh, Companies like foundries, for instance, up to 16% of their input costs is electricity now. Uh, And that's rendered many of them uneconomic. They're unable to compete, and they've simply shut down, and that's cost us jobs. Uh, In fact, across the manufacturing sector, over the last 10 years, while Eskom's prices have been shooting up, about 250,000 jobs have been lost in manufacturing. So in order for us to uh, protect Eskom's uh, 47,000 employees, we've seen a quarter of a million jobs being lost elsewhere in the economy. It's a bit much, though, to say that those 250,000 jobs are as a result of ESCOM. Sure, ESCOM's played a significant role in that, in the breakdown of the economy and the death of growth in South Africa and the fact that the economy, in fact, in real terms, is uh, GDP per capita is down on where it was 10 years ago. We are effectively all poorer and in a smaller economy. ESCOM's part of the story, but not the entire story, surely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, during that 10 years, we've also seen increased competition from uh, particularly Asia in manufactured goods, and that's contributed to it. Uh, But all of these things add up, and they all go into an equation that uh, determines where the companies are able to produce and stay in business. And energy costs have been an important part of that equation uh, that have rendered many companies simply unable to keep their doors open. If we want to start reindustrializing our economy and start creating jobs in the economy, we need to address the continually upward moving electricity prices and, in fact, even find ways to start bringing those prices back down again. I mean, but it's it's again not in ESCOM's best interest for that to happen. They certainly want an environment where we are heavily dependent on them. They want an environment where we uh, they can be heavily dependent on us. In other words, they can push up, uh, get uh, nurse to push up electricity prices to whatever level they deem to be suitable. Sure, but ESCOM's current financial position is simply unsustainable. So ESCOM has a massive cash shortage. ESCOM's currently spending 57 billion rand a year on its new bills. It's got close to 30 billion rand a year of interest that it has to pay on its debt. And the company is only generating 46 billion rand of net operating cash flow. So look at those numbers. You've got 46%, 46 billion of cash coming in, and you've got close to 90 billion of cash going out. Now, that equation just is unsustainable. It cannot continue. 
And the only way we can bring it into bring it to heel is to address some of the costs that are that Eskin faces. One of those is its employee costs. It's certainly not the only one. We need to address its primary energy costs, which is the cost of coal. Its coal costs have shot up dramatically as well over the last 10 years. We also have to do something about the capex that it's busy spending. We have to look at ways of potentially slowing down construction of Kutsigan, Madupi, and other projects and uh, try and, and save cash. The only, uh, the, there is no other solution that's on the table that's feasible. The only other path that we end up going down is, is bankruptcy of ESCOM and potentially with it the whole state. And that is the very real risk. I mean, ESCOM's debt burden is going to hit a trillion rand before it begins to decline based on current projections. And uh, we saw the country being held over a barrel by trades unions. That was happening, of course, last week. And the trade union movement being very effective in forcing the hand of government to come back to the table and saying, OK, zero percent is off the table. Um, we don't know what else is going to be on the table. But for, for now, it looks like the unions won the day last week. Well, Eskom is working on a corporate plan. They're currently uh, expected to reveal to us all come September that will chart out some kind of sustainable financial uh, position for the entity. Uh, it's got to find every solution it possibly can. Employee costs are clearly one of them. Uh, now, there is room to engage with unions. I think that there is discussions to be had about different levels of employees. Uh, it looks to be the case that Eskom's uh, employee cost acceleration has been predominantly at the upper level, so more senior roles. Uh, and there are so there's potential to work with unions in a way that will support the least off workers while reining in costs and saving costs at uh, higher levels of utility. But it's not just a, a question of wages here, uh, Bruce. There also has to be redu- reductions in headcounts. Eskom employs about a third more people than comparable utilities around the world. Uh, its number, its headcount has grown 46%, while it's producing 5% less electricity than a decade ago. It doesn't add up. That has to be addressed if we're going to find a sustainable financial model for the utility. So, Theobald, thank you, financial analyst and chairman at Intellidex. Stark warnings today about the huge burden being placed on ESCOM by the state which is overstaffed, under capacity, and uh, simply having creating so many competitors for itself through people privatizing and taking themselves off the grid. Companies are doing it, individuals who can afford it are doing it, and ESCOM is sitting stuck in the dark ages with antiquated technologies and simply not nimble-footed enough to get around the problem it's got right now, which is that of the unions. The Money Show. Business Books. So one of my favorite streets in Cape Town is near Parliament. And if you come from the east of town, if you're walking through Cape Town, you've got to cross Spin Street. Now, I don't know if Spin Street was there before the parliamentary precinct was built or if the Spin, somebody in the city of Cape Town came up with a fun, fancy name coming up to Parliament because politics is all about spinning. Nobody wants the truth to be known in politics. It's all about the most appropriate version of the truth that makes you look as good as possible um, in the public eye. Nick Cleland and Ryan could see have written a brand new book. It's called Spin, the Art of Managing the Media. And anybody who deals with media on a, base, on a daily basis um, knows that you need to put your best foot forward on a regular basis. Nick Cleland in studio with us this evening. What is truth? It's a good question. It's, a, I suppose, a question that 
everyone in the media and in politics are talking about, particularly now. You see, now you're spinning... Of, you're this already, is a Donald Trump world. No, no, you already <laughs> are spinning a version of an answer which requires a very simple response. What <laughs> is truth? And you go off on a tangent. Objective fact. The, what is objective fact? Well, you see, now you're starting to become philosophical. <laughs> you can't say that and then expect me to come back with an answer. <laughs> and, and this is, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> the game of spin. It's when somebody doesn't want to answer a question, they go back at you with a question or with a statement. You see, I should have known to better to write a book and then ask journalists to tell me what they think of it. <laughs> no, but look, I mean, it's, it's an interesting book because it feels like it's a little bit of an, in a time warp. Yes, you do, issue, you do address the issues of, of social media and mm-hmm. you are absolutely on point when, say, uh, social media has become the source of so much news and information so much of it is unverified when it is published as fact and truth we don't get uh, the appropriate levels of response when it comes to what happens in social media but spin has got a negative connotation this idea, Spin City, Michael J. Fox I think Mm -hmm. that's probably what you grew up on that's what inspired you let me just put the record straight right away Spin was not my first choice for the title of this book. No, but, but, but look, I mean, let's talk about but that's, spin. That's the nature of the it industry, is. the information management industry. It is, absolutely. And that's the thing. That's, it's also the thing that's quite useful to use when you're the opposition of a politician. Ah, oh, that's spin. Or if you're a journalist, oh my goodness, he's spinning me. So, you know, we live in a world where there's this fiercely competitive vying for your space to connect with a voter to achieve an outcome. And so... If you do not know how to play this game, someone else will, and you will lose. And that's the point. What's wrong with truth? Um, in, in Nothing's the, wrong with the truth. But, but why then is there this obsession with spinning the truth to deliver the most palatable version of it? Rather because than everyone wants to win. No matter who they are, they want to win. Their company must succeed. My party must succeed. I'm going to win, and I'm going to use everything that I've got to make sure that you lose. That's the world we live in. Is spin fact or is spin fiction? Spin is the facts used to make sure that you win. When last did you lie for a client? I don't lie for clients. So you're not, That's Max, one thing. No, so no. You're not Max Clifford. Because Max no. Clifford yeah, yeah. was a very, very accomplished liar. Yeah. Um, sometimes he told the truth. Sometimes he lie, lied blatantly. And his mm-hmm. strength was that nobody could tell the difference between the two until he got caught for pedophilia. Or was it, it was molestation of some kind yeah. and died in jail, which, mm-hmm. was, which was a fitting end. Absolutely. Um, but be, there is this belief that you can lie your way out of a problem. No, there is. And look, from, from our business perspective... We don't take on clients that we can't stand up for in public. But, I mean, I've had a long career as a politician, and that was the great thing about being in a party was you actually felt that you were part of a cause. You actually went out there and said, I believe in this with my gut, with my heart. And you can actually stand out there and say, right, take me on because this is the truth. You play rough, you want to win, but the weapon is the truth. Uh, or, 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 the, or, or a version of the truth. And, I mean, <sighs> Bell Pottinger. How how jealous were you of the great skills of Bell Pottinger in their ability to manipulate as many people as they did for as long as they did? You must have looked at that with some level of awe. Regardless of how you feel about it personally, they were blooming good at it for a while. Yeah, look, in in the book, (laughs) I make it very, very clear that this book is to teach people how to manage the media but not to use the tricks of Bill Pottinger. Sure, look, they were bloody amazing at defining a narrative and creating some buzz and getting some attention. But at the end of the day, what they were doing was unethical, 
was wrong, was undemocratic. They were creating fictions, which and it goes to the point of when and if you ever lie for anybody, that is absolute proof that lying doesn't work on a on a on a sustainable basis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and they're dead as a result. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you've got more clients. Less competition. The, the, the world is more open yeah. to you. How do you choose your clients? Somebody comes to you and says, Nick, I've got a problem. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, there are 100 people dead and they're saying it's me. Well, actually, interestingly enough, most of our clients, when we started this business, leaving politics and going into a corporate communications, public affairs, lobbying, crisis communications firm, we thought there'd be loads of clients who actually stuffed up and would want us to take control of their crises. As it turns out in South Africa, every CEO, every board, every management team knows exactly what to do. The percentage of crises that crisis teams that we run is negligible. We run campaigns to change things for businesses, for clients who have a legislative or regulatory, regulatory problem and who see their business going under or being in jeopardy because of that. So we run full campaigns. So was day zero your idea, the line day zero? It was much contested and made, made criticized in Cape Town, for example, mm-hmm. as water levels and dams yep. were dropping. Was day zero your idea? Well, let me put it this way. The word yes, day is zero. the answer. <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. not, actually. All right. And unfortunately, in politics, they say explaining is losing, but let me explain. Um, day zero existed. But when I walked in there on the first day and was asked to try and sort of fix up the mess that was existing... Day zero was this nebulous idea when there'd be no water. Zero, nothing, nada. And then, three or four weeks before then, the disaster management team had this concept that we would make people queue for water on some sort of basis of making sure that everyone would get 25 litres a day. And I turned around to everyone and I said, hold on now. That, in a city like Cape Town, is day zero. It's day zero because you can understand it you can visualize it, and it scares the living daylights out of you. Some notional idea of zero water, dry taps, means nothing because it's completely improbable. So all I did was I said, guys, that's not day zero. This is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and uh, again, as a campaign, it worked. Did it undermine the credibility of the city, however, when suddenly there were 10 billion liters of water that were released from catchment areas above um, Cape Town's water supplies? And it, it kind of it got a bit messy after a while. Well, look, I mean, we were only part of this game for literally two and a half months. And then we resigned from that contract. So the Why? way that this has been managed has been very political. It's been against the backdrop of the perfect storm of political machinations. Is the mayor the mayor? Who's in charge? There's politics at play here. So this thing got very messy. Mm-hmm. And you got your names on the front page of, of the Cape Times for, 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 uh, for contracts. And, of course, your business partner, Tony Leon, um, being a, a former leader of the party, finds himself sort of named. Whether you got the contract legitimately or not is not the fact that, that matter in this particular case. It's the associations. How did you spin your way out of that one? Well, let me tell you a little secret. Being on the front page of the Cape Times in 2018 is no big deal because nobody reads the Cape Times in 2018. <laughs> oh, he's picking a fight. You say that you act on behalf of clients yeah. looking to change the status quo. So somebody's got an enemy. Um, you Or a government might be creating legislation that is going to mean the end of their business. Okay. It happens often. Um, and so you then create... You, you, do almost what Bell Pottinger did, forgive me. Um, you, do, you, you create scenarios, you create the news. You say, here is a problem, let us solve that problem, let us leak information, let's find official documents, let's find sources of information, and let's put that into the mainstream media. 
Well, not as insidious as that, but the point that we can exploit is that we understand what news is and what lots of communications companies, politicians, companies think. They think that good news is news, but good news is boring. You can say how wonderful you are, it'll last for exactly one hour, and then everyone's bored and yawning. What we do is we generate conflict, not aggressive conflict, but the conflict of ideas. Because if I can keep an argument going for three weeks, trust me, everyone will know what I'm talking about. And I pick on people who want to start a debate with me. And radio stations like this and every other newspaper in South Africa, they love a good old argument. No, we don't. Yes, you do. Oh, no, we don't. <laughs> you see, he understands the game. Social media has changed the game also because it has. The, the speed with which reputations are tarnished yep. and damaged. I, mean, I just look at um, the case of the insurers who, who, who came out uh, and defended their patch. They were accused of racism. Um, what was their name? Cecile, help me out here. The insurers that got themselves into trouble. Oh, no, my producer, everyone, my producer's blank. Nick Lennon, help me out here. No. <gasps> he started out insurance my way. God, what's wrong with you guys? You see, you test your producers and then they let you down. Um, and, and, and my way got mm-hmm. themselves into trouble. But my way survived without spin. My way survived with taking on the issues head on and just being completely frank and blunt and yeah. open about it. There are different strategies for different folks. And the world of social media requires a different kind mm-hmm perhaps rather than the hammer of dealing with the newspaper uh, 24-hour news cycle, the minute-by-minute news cycle requires a scalpel, perhaps. It does. Um, in the days when a radio station would come and sort of knock on, knock on your door and say, this is going to be a story or a newspaper, you knew that you had to deal with it because it was going directly to the public in a massive way. You're going from zero all the way to big news. Social media is different. There's this tipping point. Things, you can say things, and it may, be, it may disappear. It may go away. There might be a bigger story. So it's a case of being able to watch how things develop with the speed, with the ferocity, and with who picks it up, the influences. So it's really a case of watching this thing and watching almost as it organically sort of becomes a disease. And then you've got to get it before it spreads. You've just used the horrible word, influences. How do you it defend is. the in- – how do you define the influences? Lots of followers. Lots of followers. <laughs> That's basically yeah. it, you know. Yeah. It's big numbers. But also, obviously, lots of followers who count. Also, you know, you can have 25,000 important followers, all the journalists in South Africa, which is much more important than sort of 100,000 bots. So journalists are still important in the process of dissemination of information. Do you utilize journalists? Do you use journalists? Do you manage journalists? Do you manage the news? Well, I have lots of journalists who I would like to call my friends. And I also know how to be professional with journalists, which is, I think, very, very important. And that means never lying being respectful and always being useful. Always be useful. That's a good thing. Nick Clennon, the author of Spin, co-author of Spin, The Art of Managing the Media. Nick Clennon and Ryan Kutsia are penning that particular book. It's got some great insights in it as to how you can diffuse issues, but mostly how you can almost be a participant, a creator of information in the non-Donald Trump fake news genre. You can actually foment change by managing media the money show make money mondays
Make Money Mondays brought to you by Sunlum Private Wealth. Your wealth, our craft. Good evening and welcome to The Money Show on this Monday night. Time for, time for Make Money Mondays. Max Dupria, the founder of Freya Wierkblatt, my former neighbor from Kruenstadt. What else is he famous <laughs> for? <laughs> um, you worked at the SABC. You got fired from the SABC in 1999. You disrespected management. <gasps> You're a bad boy. And you never and, denied it, either. Yeah, you couldn't deny it. Because you did. But, you know, it was a bit of a pattern if I look back at my life. I was fired by Stephen Mulholland. And he was a difficult guy. For insubordination. I was fired by Ken Owen. Difficult guy, (laughs) yes. And then by Cherry on the Cake, the great Dr. Snooki Zikalala. Did you you just stand up to bullies? Is that that the problem? My parents would say, you know, he's still just unmanageable. And so... No, I, I would like to think I stood up for independence of, of mm. journalism, of, of writing. Uh, so that's my history. Mm. I get fi- and, you know, four times later, I decided, well, I'm unemployable. I better work for myself. And that was Freya Wierkblatt, which possibly yeah. goes down as your worst financial decision ever, I'm sure. I, I, by long shot, yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Take us through those dark days, please, because it's 1988. It's after the Rubicon. South Africa is deep in junk yeah. status. South Africa is at the hands of possibly one of the most dangerous individuals in its history, in the hands of P.W. Boerter. The securocrats are in charge. Boss is in charge. Um, the ANC is fighting back. It's it's a ferocious time in we South Africa. We had war Africa. with our neighboring states. Yeah. Yeah. We had war inside and outside. We were yeah. just coming in all directions. Ten thousands of people, tens of thousands of people in jail without trial inside the country. Bombs going off. It was ugly. Uh, 86, 87, 88, 89 uh, were rough times. So <clears throat> um, I had left Business Day. Well, I was fired by Ken Owen because I went on this Dakar safari with Yes, with of course. Was that the reason yeah. for it? Okay, yeah. that was when, then, you, when you went uh, with a, with not a delegation. Not as a journalist. No, but with a delegation yes. of Afrikaners yes. to Dakar to meet with Thabo Mbeki and the ANC in exile. In exile, yeah. And I didn't go as a journalist. So, you know, Ken had, had uh, reason on his side. because, But I thought it was important to do it. And Fonsel Slobot was a very old friend of mine from university days. And um, the, the idea was to break this idea of it's got to be a war. Mm. To say, why don't we start talking to it? Let's start the, the politics of negotiations. That was just all about. And I was there, and it was, it was historic. It was a great meeting. So we went on this trip with Tabo um, to Ghana, and we met Jerry, met Jerry Rawlings. And then we went to Burkina Faso. And we met the great President Thomas Sankara. And we in Ouagadougou, in, in Burkina Faso, we were sitting at the hotel as myself and Breitenbach, Breiten Breitenbach, Van Sale, uh, Bayes Nodier, and so on. And, I, and we got the faxes, time of faxes though. We got the faxes for the first time, what the media back in South Africa was saying about what we were doing in Senegal, in Dakar. And it was deeply depressing. Even the English language press said, you know, soft on on the communists and useful Mm -hmm. idiots. And I was very depressed being a journalist. And so Wimbeus Nudea said to me quite harshly, he said, here you sit whining 
why don't you do something about it? And I said, you know, what can I do? I'm just a... I'm just a poor boy from a poor family. Yeah, I'm just a... Nobody loves me. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, why don't you bring a voice that would paint the real picture of what apartheid was to the people who are perpetrating it? Meaning, you have to start an Afrikaans newspaper. And that's how Frey Wegblatt was born the very next year. To try and say to Afrikaans speakers in their own language, because as you know from where we come from, if you really want to speak to an Afrikaner, uh, to his heart, speak to him in Afrikaans. Mm-hmm. And so the, 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 this mad project started. Who funded the startup? I did. Where did you have money from? You're a journalist. I sold my art. I had an art collection. I cashed in my pension money. I sold all my insurance. I sold my car. I sold my house. And that got us into the first two, three months. And then we got a trickle here and a trickle there. And we did a bit of a neat struggle bookkeeping by getting money for court. Because fortunately then the apartheid state started started taking me to court. I spend more time in court than in the newsroom. Mm. And I appealed to the Europeans, European Commission at the time before the Union, and I said, this is, you know, this is important, freedom of the press and democracy. Would you fund our court cases? And so struggle bookkeeping, we charged them a little bit more for the court cases and funded the printing. (laughs) I can say it now because it's a long time ago. It was a means to an end. Yeah. A means to an end. But it was madness. I mean, why would you take on P.W. Boerter at the height of his powers, the military running the country, state of emergency, and you come with no backing because nobody would advertise with us. Nobody. Um, And and take this guy on. but, you know, it lasted the full six years and that's before an, they closed no, But that's down. a remarkable feat. And you only got close, was it Lang, Lang Hendrik van den Berg? No, it was uh, um, in, in the beginning of 94. Actually, we didn't, we didn't get past uh, the, uh, the election. We were closed down in, in February. Uh, of 94 by General Lothar Nietling. Lothar Nietling, sorry. Who won a case. Actually, we, we won the case. Johan Krichler. Uh, heard the case. It was a case for defamation. It, the case lasted six years and, and cost a vast amount of money. We, for example, we had to go and sit in London. And so he took it on appeal and the appellate division of those days in Bloemfontein, uh, six old bullies who couldn't make up their minds and they said, well, they don't know who to believe. And in that case, they gave, they forced me to pay him only 90000 and he wanted $10 million. But I had to pay the legal costs. So that was the end of that, and that was uh, a dent in my financial future for years afterwards. No, but absolutely. I mean, this, that, that should have been your most productive era. You were in yeah. your 30s and 40s at the time. Yes. Um, and you should have, that's when you're supposed to be building wealth, and that's when you I, were I actively remember, destroying it. I remember Dion Duplessis. Remember him? Yes. The character? He was the, the uh, he started the, the Sun. Yeah. And when we started Freyvik Plot, he was a mate of mine. And he came to me and he said, this is, this is a grand idea. This is a very exciting idea. He says, but you're a bloody fool. He says, you're going to lose your money. And I said, well, it's more important than money. And he looked at me and he said, no, nothing is, nothing <laughs> more, is more important than money. <laughs>
Do you agree with him now? No, I, why I, I, I think about it often, but no, I don't agree. No, I don't agree at all. We'll talk more to Mark Zipriya in just a moment. Mark Zipriya is a columnist. He's a journalist of many years standing. He's a former newspaper publisher. Well, for six years he was a newspaper publisher and then had it all taken away after putting his life savings and everything he owned into uh, funding Freya Wirkblatt. When that died, so did his financial future. Uh, but Mark Zipriya is with us in the studio. He still stands by his decision to put his money into a loss-making project. More with him in just a moment. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual. Investing with Africa for Africa. Listing on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange on 26 June. Old Mutual. Do great things. Mark Zabrero, Make Money Monday special edition guest. Um, you grew up in Kronstadt. You went to school in Kronstadt. Kronstadt. You escaped from Kronstadt. And, I escaped. And did, and did you ever go back for any meaningful period of time? No. Excellent. No. I'm actually heading back to that part of the world very briefly this coming weekend um, just to go and you know, renew some acquaintances. No, uh, my brothers and sisters, some of them have been back, and they say it is so appalling what's happened to Grunstadt that uh, it'll just depress you. That's the nature of small-town South Africa, though. Yeah. I mean, those small towns, I mean, I, I, went, I went back to Filyunskruen a while back. I was on my way to Nampu and dodging the potholes mm. and everything else. And I, I, I wrote a column about it just saying, you know, we're going back. I, took the, I stole Bill Bryson's line about I come from Boise, Idaho. Somebody had to or something like that. And I, I come from Filyunskruen. Somebody had to. And somebody, had, you know, it was a one-horse town, but somebody shot the horse and stole the saddle. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and it's a, the brutal That's reality. Yeah. That is Filyunskruen. I mean, and yeah, there's not even the skeleton left of the horse. It's yeah. just blown away in the dust. It, depressing. It our is small, very depressing. Our, our small town South Africa has been allowed mm. to, to, to rot and die. Yeah. And, real, and real South Africans live in these towns, for goodness yes. sake. Um, when you grew up, was there money? I mean, did you, did, you, you come from, did you come from some money? You lived just outside town, if memory serves? No, we, we lived on the edge of town. No, very comfortable middle class. Mm. Um, what did mom and dad do? Mother was a teacher mm-hmm. at high school. And my father was part-time farmer. He started off when I was a kid. He was kind of a sales executive for, for Albert Vessels. Oh, yes, for, for the motor company, yes. Yeah, and then... Vessels Motors. <clears throat> yeah. And then he worked for Sandlum as a financial advisor. Okay. Yeah. So, no, we were very comfortable. I've never been hungry, never... Well, as a child, I was never hungry. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, of course, we, we've, we've spoken about how you go into journalism and you, you then uh, lose a lot of money. And, and, the, and did, you, did, you, did you manage to get those debts written off at least? By the, by the time Nelson Mandela becomes president, it's all forgiven and all, all goes by the wayside. No. And you don't, or are you left with a long-standing liability? I, le- I was left with a long-standing liability and oh. asked, and I said, you know, clearly you know what this court case was about. But in the meantime, the Truth Commission happened. Okay. And so the whole reason for me losing that uh, defamation case was swept aside by the Truth Commission because all the evidence came out. We were 100% correct. We didn't defame the guy. It was true. And I went to the state and I said, well, certainly I don't have to pay you back. And they said, yes, you do. And I said, well, how come? Isn't it, wouldn't it be immoral? Maybe so. But then I started long dealings with Civil servant time, yeah. after civil servant and minister and and it just it's pure incompetence and yeah I paid it all I paid it all that must have set you back dramatically yeah the whole Freyvikpot thing I must say ruined me uh, financially yeah but uh, as you said earlier 
it was it was a worthwhile time in my life. It was an important time in my life. It was a very exciting time in my life. Sure. And what do people pay for excitement? <laughs> you know, you can't mm. buy. Yeah. I mean, I, I... You went up against some of the scariest individuals born since yeah. 1920, probably. Yeah, and um, they tried to kill me twice. Proper assassination. They blew up my office. They sabotaged my car. Um... And all in all... They weren't very good at that stuff, were they? I mean, no. They were, they were quite effective in some cases. No, in fact, I didn't know that they tried to kill me. <laughs> in fact, it was 96. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's funny. 96, a guy phoned me and he said, And so we went to Pretoria and we sat at this place called the Fountains or somewhere where the, the old heavies used to hang out. And he told me this bizarre story of being told, and he was a colonel in, in military intelligence, told to go and kill me on a little farm that I had in the Eastern Free State. And I was just sitting there looking at this guy. And I said, well, so why didn't you? And he said, well, the first time your daughter was with you. He says, I'm not a monster. I'm not going to kill you in front of your daughter. (laughs) And the second time, because they got my neighbor to spy on me and phone them when I come through from Johannesburg. And the second time, it was all rigged up to kill me. And I didn't pitch. And then he says, and then it, I think then it was January 1990, 1990, he says, and, and then you became a hero. Why would I kill you? Because we released Mandela then. <laughs> astonishing, isn't it? I mean, absolutely astonishing. You know, so uh, what I'm saying is, mm. lost a lot of money, but people pay big money for this kind of exciting life. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm quite happy. Now, but, and when you, when you look at money, I mean, you've, you've, threw, you've, you've paid the debt, I assume. Yeah. You still have a criminal record. I'm sitting opposite. Uh, I have uh, a long some, criminal record. A long criminal record, which is Communism yet to be expunged. Act, terrorism Act, Internal Safety Act, Internal Security Act. And, all the, and that's not being expunged either? Uh, they can't get it right, no. Try it, because it's hard to travel overseas with that kind of criminal record. But, you know... It's astonishing. It is. And it, is, it is astonishing. I mean, the, when, you, when you look at this, this career post Freya Blood, have you made good money decisions since then? Um, mostly not, I would say. Uh, I would say the only good decision that I did make was to not bring the money I earned overseas back. Aha. Uh-huh. To keep it there in the safe hands of my friends at Investec. Aha. Uh-huh. Um, because I do guest lecturing, yeah. um, the odd consultation. I even assisted with a big merger through the, the competition tribunal. So I get paid in dollars and I said, let's leave it there. Um, that was a good decision. Um, but for the rest... Not really. I'm not. I'm not very good at this stuff. No, but, but, and uh, you know, have you invested at all um, subsequently? And other than sort of keeping some money offshore, have you? Do you I run share portfolios? Do you put, keep not. cash in the bank? I have no investment anywhere. I'm not an, a shareholder of anything. I keep on telling my EFF friends when they attack me, it's like <laughs> white privilege, and I said, I don't own a company. I'm not the director of a company. I don't own shares. I don't have savings. Um, so, you know, I have property yeah, and all paid up and that's good. And, and the, uh, then there's the idea of retirement. Yeah. That's a foreign concept. I, 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 don't, I don't get it. Yeah. I don't get it. I, do people still retire? 
Some do, apparently, but then they've... Why would they retire? What is the concept? I, I remember, don't get it. I remember talking to a former chief executive about a week before he was retiring. He was like a kid about to write his last matric exam. Or like the Trupi who was, you know, you'll yeah. remember the guys who went to do national service, about to finish his national service. It was... He resented every day of his work life. He was turning 60 and he was able to retire and he couldn't have been more pleased. Oh, I and I just thought... That is so tragic. You've had a horrible. You've made lots and lots of money, and you'll never have to worry about a thing ever again. But you've hated the last forty years of your life, and that's the best time of your life. Yeah, it's like money wasted on youth. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I don't think about that stuff. Uh, I'm very active. I'm more active now than, than I suppose ever before. I make a fair amount of money, and I'm having great fun. And if I get so old that I, I have limited freedom of movement in my body, I'll keep on writing. I write books. I've written 14 books. Lots I books. like it. Um, so I have no complaints. Do you have art? Do you, have you rebuilt your art collection? No, not really. No, not really. And I, I wondered the other day because I had some Betty Celia Barnards. I had a couple of prints from John Mufangeo. Uh, I even had a, a, a William Kentridge uh, painting. I had Marlene Dumas. And if I look at the prices now, I would have been... Don't do that. I would have been fairly wealthy. <laughs> but it's, it, was, it was a good investment, even though it worked out finan- didn't work out financially. It worked out for me. A contribution to democracy. Yeah. You'd think the democracy could give you a little bit of a, a, bit of a pardon. Talk to Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, he's not talking to you because you've got a criminal record. Master Breer, what a pleasure to see you. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing some very horrific stories around money. But, boy, what some, some very fulfilling stories around money. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual. Investing with Africa for Africa. Listing on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange on 26 June. Old Mutual. Do great things. Well, that was an eye-opener. Max Dupriya this evening on The Money Show. That's it from the show for tonight. Looking forward to tomorrow. Andy Rice with Heroes and Zeros. You can see him scratching and sharpening his claws already. Good night.